Hello, everybody. This is Reading with Windows, where we read C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. This is installment seven. Uh, I'm Job, and I like the book. <laughs> I'm Jeff, and I like Job. <laughs> uh, I'm Luke, and I like to party. All right, let's, let's party. Hey, wait a I like to party. Hang on. Yeah. <laughs> Depends whether it's a metaphor for something else. In any case, <laughs> let's let's party with, with grief. Party with grief. We're starting with chapter two. Um, for the first time, I have looked back and read these notes. They appall me. From the way I've been talking, anyone would think that age's death mattered chiefly for its effects on myself. Her point of view seems to have dropped out of sight. Have I forgotten the moment of bitterness when she cried out, and there was so much to live for? Happiness had not come to her early in life. A thousand years of it would not have made her blasé. Her palate for all the joys of sense and intellect and spirit was fresh and unspoiled. Nothing would have been wasted on her. She liked more things and liked them more than anyone I have known. A noble hunger, long unsatisfied, met at last its proper food, and almost instantly the food was snatched away. Fate, or whatever it is, delights to produce a great capacity and then frustrate it. Beethoven went deaf. By our standards, a mean joke, the monkey trick of a spiteful imbecile. <laughs> and it's kind of strong. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard. Uh, my first uh, takeaway from it, I guess, is a couple things. Um, I have a very strong resonance with uh, what seems to be Lewis's description of age. Um, just her, the sentence, her palate for all the joys of sense and intellect and spirit was fresh and unspoiled. Um, is that, uh, that's... Uh, and maybe that's just my uh, enthusiasm because I'm a, if you do my big five personality test, my enthusiasm is like the 98th percentile. So um, very often uh, I was just uh, interacting with Sarah and I was saying, she was, she said this line, which is very much mine, which is, you know, I want it all or nothing at all. If I'm interested in something, I'm interested a hundred percent. I either couldn't care less or I'm just fully interested. And so I get really fired up about things. Um, and so I can relate. That's usually my greatest connection with people is just like, if I sense it's the Lewis kind of description of friendship is, Oh, you too. When I see someone else who's passion, it's, it's hard for me to love something more than just passion in someone else. <laughs> I get really, so I could sense that, and um, and it seemed, especially with his description of her, why why it could seem so bitter and hard is that, you know, when he fell in love with her, the connection that they must have had and the interaction they must have had must have been kind of a fulfillment to some degree of her her hunger for some kind of connection with someone else who maybe had 
similar passions over similar things and then and then all of a sudden to have the rug pulled out you know it seems to kind of hint almost that lewis but he doesn't strike me as such but it, it, it looks to me that it sounds like there is some sort of justice in the sense that the more you enjoy life the less it should warrant itself to be taken away because you mm. probably appreciate the gift instead of some some person who just kind of lives kind of in in Camus the stranger and just you know grows to be 103 years old and somebody like age just full of life and wonder and joy and mm. yeah it's like um what that makes me think of and maybe this isn't what what you mean but i'm often um one of the best teachers that i had in my life i went to a christian boarding school for a couple of years and um I had an English teacher who had a profound effect on me and she, she had a husband who fairly early on in their marriage, um, they were in a car accident and I'm not sure what his condition was, but it was essentially, um, he had some degree of brain damage to the point where he, I don't know. He was he was he was a handicapped version of himself. So a lot of his, um, I don't know the 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 shading and the coloring and the nuance that makes an individual really unique. I mean, there were glimmers of that, but they were just like a very um, a very low resolution version of that was kind of left. You know, almost a mm. shell of what the man was. Right. And, uh, and she, and I mean, she took care of him there, you know, and I mean, I think I have, I lo I've lost touch with him and I think he's still living, but he just, he had no short term memory. And, um, and I remember the description that she always, she always said this of him is that she always felt like she would, she, and I don't know what I think about it still, but she said somewhat God in his mercy took she she said it this way she loved him too much that god in his mercy removed him to some degree to to essentially remove an idolatry that she had for him I don't, which seems like uh she just said like she it's almost as if and i don't know what i think about that i mean it's almost as if she loved him too much that that God removed that as a hindrance. I mean, maybe it's, it's such a degree. I don't know. I don't know what exactly I feel about that. In a way a, it's very beautiful. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt Luke. I just, yeah, um, I haven't read through the book that we're working on right now, all the way to the end in several years now. So um, I can't remember if it's a theme in this book. Um, but I'm pretty certain I remember it being a theme, exactly what you're talking about there, being a theme in this book um, and being a theme in Sheldon Van Auken's, um A Severe Mercy, because it's the <laughs> same, it's the same type idea. Is, <laughs> you know, the love that I had for this person 
was a rival and was in the place mm-hmm. of you know the love um that that should be or can only be for god and i think the title of that book came from um something that c.s lewis said to him in a letter or after he had lost his wife that book yeah i don't know you, 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 you've you read received, it recently haven't you joe uh you have received a severe mercy yeah uh well i can't claim i read it i actually stopped i couldn't take it the, the book pissed me off too <laughs> you no know, it made me just really physically angry mm. the characters not the tragedy the the, the people that's not a discussion. That's not. That's not go there. That's not go our there. Next, I, our next reading. No, no, never. I'm. I'm not going to read that book again. However, Joe. However, yeah. not to interrupt you, but that what you just described, and I mean, this goes all the way back to your and I first unaired conversation when we were getting to know each other. Um, what you just described is why I like you so much. <laughs> because you feel those things that deeply. The fact that that book, you couldn't even finish it. Like your depth of feeling instantly makes me love you because you feel, even though we're very different people, you feel the world with what seems to me the depth that I do. Cause that's how I often, that's my way, a way I'll describe. And this relates back to kind of my, my, um, first point about age is that when I feel like other people, I feel a lot of times it's almost like the movie Pleasantville where everyone else is walking around in black and white and it's like they're on anti-anxiety meds and they're just like half killing their senses so that they can cope with life. And I just feel like I'm just, I'm feeling all the feels so intensely and you reading that book saying you couldn't even finish it. I'm just like, Oh God, that's great. No, no, no. It just, it just means I'm very easily irritated. Well, well that's the negative side of it, maybe. Mm. But, but I think you're, you're so easily irritated because, and, and you could elaborate on why this is, and we don't have to go off on a severe mercy, but it's, it's some, you feel like something is misaligned, which is probably what's causing your irritation, which is, which is stemming from from a desire for beauty and justice and and shalom and for the world to be as it ought to be. Oh, no, 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 man, no, no. I, I, I appreciate your view of me, but that's so wrong. No, no I'm, just an, I'm just a judgmental asshole. That's, that's why. Well, I don't know. Maybe oh, I am. Yeah. I'm tempted to want to hear Job just elaborate on everything <laughs> in that book that triggered him, but I won't. Hang on. Uh, okay, yeah, we got to get back to the book somehow. What were we? Um, well, otherwise, I got to, you know, I haven't heard Jeff's idea on this yet. I didn't, I didn't really have much. I, I feel like um, I actually did do some prep work for this portion before we started today. And um, I feel like he goes on kind of on this same thought for about three paragraphs. So it might be good to, to just jump into the next one to see okay. him elaborate on it. Okay, I will interlude by Luke's request with some thoughts I wrote down about the severe mercy. Here we go, Luke, you ready? Yeah. It would probably be a bit much to convey over text, but the way they seemingly adopt Christianity as a 
quote unquote, nice extra thing with their Oxford friends in their Oxford lives and corking the next reserve burgundy during their Christian book club with the dreams of their schooner, just them and Christ and nothing else. Have these people ever seen anybody who's not elite upper class suffering or poor than growing mm. up with his house with freaking servants will take Christianity as the next proper coat to wear and them coming back to the US and having the gall to complain about the people there. I don't hear a single thing about caring for people or wanting to get a better understanding of another. Yuck, I'm making myself read the book because you recommended it, but... And that was a discussion with somebody who recommended I read the book. <laughs> Just a side note for everybody watching, we've taken a, a big left turn into Job's thoughts on another book. <laughs> a severe mercy. And let's go back which to is, a grief observe. Which is tangentially uh, associated with C.S. Lewis. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll cut it in post. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's related, Joe. See, but I still hear that. Yes, there's judgment, but I still hear underneath that. You're mad at them because they're not caring for the other or they're not, they're not seeing with eyes outside of their own myopic self-absorption oh sure but I, I only have i only get to do that if i'm doing a better job of it which i don't so i'm a hypocrite <laughs> you see too much of yourself in them job is that what it is oh no but it's just very easy to criticize others while you know <clears throat> sitting on your nice high horse eating caviar <laughs> well wait, it's, caviar is too salty i mean with we know that the three of us have it all figured out. So we're good. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's, let's continue. Let's see. Okay. I must think more about age and less about myself. Yes, that sounds very well, but there's a snag. I am thinking about her nearly always thinking of the age facts, real words, looks, laughs, and actions of hers, but it is my own mind that selects and groups them. Already, less than a month after her death, I can feel the slow, insidious beginning of a process that will make the age I think of into a more and more imaginary woman. Founded on facts, no doubt, I shall put in nothing fictitious, or I hope I shan't, but won't the composition inevitably become more and more my own? The reality is no longer there to check me, to pull me up short, as the real age so often did so unexpectedly by being so thoroughly herself and not me. Luke, uh, it's becoming an icon and therefore an idol. Yeah, for sure. That's what I was saying. I listen to you, time. man. <laughs> yeah. I pay attention. <laughs> Good, yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. And what's interesting to me about this, I mean, part of it is, you know, we're all, we're all a confusing mixture of, of many different people. Um, but I think of the quote Jeff that you sent me from his essay on historicism. I mean, Lewis, Lewis knows better than what he's writing, you know, as if, as if he's putting forth nothing fictitious. I mean, that's what we're doing all the time. I mean, you never get, hmm. you're never seeing the thing purely, you know, that is, that's the difference between an icon and an idol. And so what I do relate to is he's saying, the reality is no longer there to check me whether or not we're seeing that fully clearly, even when another person is alive, they are still 
they are still in, you know, an, another a person, an agent there that's pushing back against you actively versus your own mind. Um, so yeah, for sure. Um, it's a, oh man, that's my, I don't know. I don't know what exactly his, his fear is. It's, it's maybe the, I mean, obviously it's not having her there, but it's just the isolation, the loneliness. I don't know. What, what it's making me think of is one of my biggest fears is just being left, <laughs> being, what this makes me think of is being left to myself. Like that's one of my biggest fears. I don't, um, that's one of the biggest reasons I like other people is it draws me out of my self-absorption. And so I don't know. I don't know if that's what he's getting at a little bit. I mean, obviously she's not there to love. I mean, that's the easiest and simplest way to get at, but I'm trying to. Well, she's not there to be herself, but she's also known also not there to show him to himself. Right. It's, it seems like to me within this, he's saying, I mean, he's, he's talking about this duality that's so hard, you know, because he's saying he thinks of her always and all these things, but then it's my mind that selects and groups them. Interestingly, this is getting into, I think, a lot of what the whole Paul Vanderclay discussion is getting into, which is, um, you know, material versus spiritual. What is the material wor world? Mind versus physical dual out duality. I mean, it's getting into all that. What is, what is me? What is the other? Um, your mind is always processing everything. And so you can't, it's not as if you can, um, what's the word, extricate yourself from that process. There isn't such a thing. So um, it kind of yeah, gets into the, the, the loss of yourself in the other, maybe kind of like what Guy Sensok was talking about. When you're, you, did you ever watch that conversation with Paul and Guy when he was talking about circling? Have you seen that, Joe? Was that ringing a bell? I think his name's Guy Sensok, right? Yeah. Is it the guy with the long beard? You no, know, the, the French, the guy who went to the French no. school? Gallagher. No, no. He's, no, he's, he's bald. Yeah, he he's a he's a, lives in California, I believe. German descent. Obviously, uh, you know, he has a decent fashion sense because that shirt was dope. Um, <laughs> I definitely don't recall. No, that was, that was not the that was not the uh, astrophysicist, right? The one? No, I, I don't know. Paul talks to too many people. Oh no. No, he does, he's a yeah. he's a former masseuse, among other yeah, things. Yeah, so he talked about knowing through his hands and stuff. I don't know. It's, it's one of my. It's one of Paul's conversations that's stuck with me the most. But he talks about he he teaches now this process called othering, where he says you're almost. And they talk a lot about listening, and when you're when you're really listening to someone else, this is the point that I'm referring to you almost, you're no longer, your ego shuts down. You're no longer processing. You're not waiting to speak. You're just fully absorbed into them. And it's almost like you merge. Um, and so it's almost like the loss of that whole duality of thinking like, I'm thinking about H always, but then, but you're still, but yet if you're still doing that in a self-absorbed way, um, 
it um you you're not really you're not really fully engaged and absorbed into the other you're just within yourself and then obviously when someone's deceased it's really hard to do that because the only way you can do that is I don't know. Interestingly, it probably goes back to an icon. That's probably what meditating and prayer and looking at an icon is supposed to do is it's just this inanimate thing, but you're supposed to meditatively and contemplatively see through that thing to the transcendent thing. So, so say you have an icon of John Chrysostom and yeah. let's say you would, you would meditate on that just to go on a bit of a tangent. Uh, sure do you meditate on what who they were and what they taught or is it something else this is something i don't i don't know i don't know enough to answer that question i mean i'm just this is the thing i'm not a you know i'm just learning and delving into these things a lot myself and so even when i speak of these kind of practices and iconography i'm i'm speaking about it mainly from ignorance and intuition so um i think it's just a contemplative practice where where you are praying or speaking or or understanding that it it's almost see i don't know the way that i guess that i would understand interacting with an icon is the same way that i think if if healthy i would be interacting with you is that I'm engaging you and your otherness and understanding you and listening to you, but also understanding never replacing you for my, <clears throat> for my projection and my image of you. Because that's, that would be to make you static versus, versus this um, unknow, unknowable in, some, in totality infinity of, of, of what you are you know, versus my mental image of you. I don't know, maybe this is getting too esoteric for, okay. <laughs> for a group uh, observed. I, I just, I, I was curious. Right, well, I don't know. I'm just talking it out, I don't know. That's right, yeah, I'm, it's fine. Jeff, yeah. you got any anything? <clears throat> the only thought that I had is probably pretty much in line with everything that you were saying, Luke. Um, it might just be saying the same thing in a different way, but just another idea that came to mind is even when you're interacting with a person like face to face, or even as we are, you know, in a screen to screen, but we're having conversations with each other. Like there are, there are so many filters between the real you and the real me. And so even as we're interacting with each other, even in the flesh, um, it's not a full representation of the person because we're limited by language, we're limited by uh, our bodies, we're limited by, you know, the things that, that keep the fullness of our being from actually communing with one another, right? And I just... I was about to say, I don't think that there is anything on this plane of existence that allows us to be able to do that. I think that's probably, I'm probably saying too much. I'm saying more than, than 
I could actually prove is true. So that's probably not the case. There, there are likely ways for us to actually relate and commune with one another fully that we're just not aware of yet or that we haven't tapped into. And I, I partially don't even know what I'm saying <laughs> by making But don't you think, so, so to add on to that point though, Jeff, don't you, I mean, and maybe I feel like I have had and do have experiences in conversations with people, um, maybe singing with people, uh, doing, I feel like I have interactions with people where you, where you kind of transcend, um, where you transcend the kind of duality where you're, where you do merge more in the way that guys talking about, they're the kind of moments <clears throat> where you, I don't know. It's, it's a kind of akin to what Rivereki would talk about or like a flow state or something where you just like, you, I don't know. It's, it's hard to put words into because you don't, it's almost more like you, you, uh, and maybe in some degree this gets into what, and this is something we've been talking about in a lot of the Barfield conversations, but that's maybe where you're getting glimmers and tastes, subtastes, mm -hmm. pre-tastes pre of what final participation is, which isn't, which isn't a loss of, of, a, of the self, but it's a, um, it's a, it's a transcendence and it's a merging. It's a dance. It's a, it's a unity. It's almost like it's, it's fringing on Trinitarian participation or something where there's distinction, but unity, mm. you know, there's difference, but yet oneness. And yeah. I feel like I get close to tasting that with people sometimes it's rare. I would say it's less than 1% of my conscious existence, but there are moments where that happens. Yeah, I'll just say that the, the times where we feel, those moments where we feel most connected or where we felt most connected and we felt like there's like a really deep connection with someone or with a group of people, I think you're right. I think we're only getting glimpses or pieces of an infinite depth that's there yeah. Um, with that person. And when I, when I say infinite death, you know, I'll, I'll try to cage that still in a Christian frame and say infinite de depth in the sense that, you know, the Imago Dei that's in each person is there's, there's such a depth there that we can't even perceive of that we, that we would be, if we could able to connect with and feel unified with, I guess. But you're doing it in like almost a, it's gotta be, it's like a, and this is where I'd evoke this or bring in this term transrational. It, it's not a, it's not an articulatable experience because it's, it's outside of that realm. It's like you, it's almost more akin to like a musical experience. It's like when people who, I don't know who was talking about this, maybe Peugeot was talking about it, but like at a concert when everyone is in, in sync or in rhythm and they've lost themselves and they're fully into, or like a good movie or something, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're participating and everyone is simultaneously brought together, but yet all those things are somewhat impersonal because you're all focused on something else but that's where like the idea of the divine dance it's like face to it's like a face-to-face -face merging connection of both of those things and so 
And I, I don't know, and maybe to take it back to what Lewis is talking about is he's, and I don't know where he got and where he'll get further in this book, but like he has maybe in his mind because of the, maybe the starkness or the way that he conceives of death and that separation is that he has lost that, that ability or that faculty in her death to have any degree of that participation anymore, which I don't know from a, from more of like an orthodox perspective and how we, we view death. I mean, it is clearly different, but yet not have, not having a person here, but the, but the finality of death and, and how we relate to that in relation to time is something that's much more ambiguous and mysterious within an Orthodox tradition than it, than with like the tradition I was raised in, for instance, it's just like they're dead and gone. That's over. You know, but the Orthodox would say like every liturgy and, and every and coming up on All Hallows Eve and All Saints Day and every, we're communing with the dead and praying for the dead all the time. I mean, obviously it's different and there's a tinge of bitterness in there because they're not like what we're doing right now is obviously not possible anymore. It's not like this. Um, but I don't know that that precludes other ways of interacting well, um, to, that don't involve necromancy and smelling salts. It's you know? not like this was possible 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that, you know, I don't know. This is where I, I become weird and kind of occultish, but like, I don't, I just don't know what, what human I don't know what humans are capable of and not even, not even using technology in this way, because this is like, a, um, a, this is us interacting through some kind of a proxy, like a, a material proxy and technology. But I mean, I don't know, like there's, I could really derail this, but this is where like, uh, <laughs> no, 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 Robert Sheldrake. <laughs> I was going to bring in Sheldrake. <laughs> No, no, I could smell that from a mile away. <laughs> you know, how do, you should watch sometime, by the way, he has a video on YouTube of pets that know when their owners are coming home. It's a, it's a phenomenal, and it's a profoundly interesting video. Because they uh, set up. Morphic resonance throws off my woo sensor, man. Dude, it, it's a study. They do it. Yeah, they, I know. They, it's a double blind study with empiricism. They set it up <laughs> with like. Have, so they, sorry, quick aside, uh, No. <laughs> they, they set it up, these pets, and they watch them, and they have cameras on the people, and they have cameras on the pets, and they take different cars, so they can't anticipate the cars, they go off, they do random phone calls, knowing when the people are going to come home, and they monitor them both at the same time, so there's no way, they, they change the systems and the times and everything, so there's no way that you could equate it to just habit or ritual or anything. But, but statistically, in, in, in a way that's like within well beyond standard deviations of doubt, the pets can anticipate, like in real time, the person will get a phone call, a random phone call, knowing they need to get home. They'll start moving toward going back home. The pet who is sitting on the floor unmoving will get up, 
go over, start walking to the window and go through its ritual that it does when the owner typically comes home. But the, it's like the pet knows. But it's, it's a, I'll send it to you. We'll, we'll, put the, we'll put the link to the video in the comments and yeah. everyone can watch and decide for themselves. I know. I call, bunk, I, I call bunk. My cat doesn't give a shit when I come home. <laughs> well, this is about dogs. Yeah, yeah I know. So, I know. <laughs> okay. See you, Lewis. Okay. But I was, I was going to say, um, I just have one more thing to say on this passage, and then we can go to the next one. Um, I, the sense that I got that Lewis was getting at here is we have snapshots and ideas of what other people are like. Um, and you know, in, in the first passage, he called it facts and he says, I hope I'm not introducing anything that's false in here, but even mm -hmm. with the facts, they're, they're insufficient. Cause even when I held the facts, whenever, you know, age was in my life, she would completely obliterate those facts with the real, I, I'll, I'll implant the word chaos of another person. Cause just when you think, you know, what someone's going to say or how they're going to react, no matter how, how well you know them sometimes they're not going to meet that template. They're not going to, you know, they're going to, yeah. um, completely what you expected is going to be, uh, subverted. And that is the beauty. That is, that is the horror and the glory of a real person and being in relationship with someone else. Yeah. And we well do that said. to ourselves mm -hmm. too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Good job, Jeff. Thanks. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs> next to joe the most precious gift that <laughs> marriage gave me was this constant impact of something very close and intimate yet all the time unmistakably other resistant in a word real is all that work to be undone is what i shall still call age to sink back horribly into being not much more than one of my old bachelor pipe dreams Oh, my dear, my dear, come back for one moment and drive that miserable phantom away. Oh, God, God, why did you take such trouble to force this creature out of its shell if it is now doomed to crawl back, to be sucked back into it? This reminds me of a particular image that I saw on the antinatalist subreddit, which you could do better than to visit. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's particularly nihilistic. Uh, I didn't know it existed until a couple of weeks ago, but uh, John mm -hmm. Buck had written this play called The Antinatalist, so I looked up what it was. Uh, the meme was something about the, the horror of being a, con a consciousness trapped in a flesh prison with the only consequences to be none again. So you have to go through all this suffering in your fleshy prison and, and then, well, who knows what, what happens after, but in the antenatalist view, probably nothing. Uh, but this, this same, who, who said that recently? I'm trying to remember who said it. I was reading some, a blog interview or I was watching something and they said that it didn't make sense to them that all that human existence collected all this knowledge and all these experiences for zilch basically that human existence in that sense didn't make any sense uh, from a religious perspective because I well feel like, oh sorry go, go ahead, ahead Joe. No, no sure i was yeah i was just gonna say i feel i feel like the spirit of something like that was in part of what jeff q 
who talked to Paul not too long ago was saying, mm-hmm. where he was saying, you know, if, if we can't, I think he was, he was linking it to climate uh, change in particular, but saying if we can't, you know, what are we, what are we storing up all of this history for? What is this all about if we can't, um, and I'm, pro- I'm probably getting it wrong now, but uh, if we can't get it, you know, if we can't maintain the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, then, you know, then what is all this for? And so that that just that struck a that sounded reminiscent to what you were just saying there, Joe. Mm. Well, and the antinatalists, I mean, they're quite easy to understand. And I mean, to your point, yeah. Well, why do we all that? Do why do we collect all that history? I mean, from a religious perspective, it makes perfect sense. From a naturalist, materialist perspective, I can't ground it anywhere. So I try not to think about it. <laughs> oh, it's a very, uh, to, to allude to and plug uh, our other reading with randos, it's a very uh, Western worldview. The promulgation of the species, like that's the, the ultimate thing. Why? Nobody can say. <laughs> well, we can, we, can tra- we can transcend it. It's okay. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll know someday. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I, I, I should not go there because that stuff is way too easy. Yeah, it's a... Um, yeah, I don't have anything else to say. Let's keep reading. Yeah, still the most precious gift that marriage gave him was was that 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 connection, intimate connection to the other in that level. Yeah, which is which is quite interesting because you know this is related, but kind of an aside. Um, Something that comes up at least in Christian circles that I pay attention to and travel in is how a lot of times um, marriage, although, you know, amazing and a gift and a, and a really great thing can become idolized. Um, Tim Keller talks about this. A lot of people talk about this because particularly in, um, in church culture and specifically in what I know best is conservative church culture, particularly within evangelicalism and probably outside of that, that we don't, um, there hasn't really, there's no place for uh, singleness and, and marriage is elevated to this status that's so, it's like, well, that's just what you do. Like, you you know, you, you uh, are born, you go to school, you go to college, you get married, you have kids, which is probably the normal, the normal way of doing it. But because of probably the loss of, monasticism and and religious orders where you're just committed to you know as a single service or something that's lost because what's what that makes me think of is c.s lewis i'd always considered lewis to be one of those people who i had always been envious of the kind of connection that he had or at least that i projected him to have with the inklings I'm just like, good grief. I want to be best friends with like a Tolkien and a Barfield and a Charles Williams. I'm like, I don't have a group of people like that. Um, You know, 
And I think oh, interesting. Oh, oh sorry. no. It's the, sorry. Okay. Sorry, uh, sorry, we let you, sorry we let you down, Luke. <laughs> interestingly, what I was going to say is interestingly, interestingly through the Paul Vanderclay world, I have gotten some of that. Like you've kind of, you've kind of simplified the work. You've, it's like, that's how I've described to people in my, you know, in my real life. <laughs> um, I've, I've said that this, I've said that this community is, is it's kind of like, it just went all throughout the world. You know, we go, we're over there in like the, the, the fishbowl of the Netherlands underwater. And, uh, and it's found like all these people that are interested in all the stuff I'm interested in that have this like just voracious appetite for content <laughs> and want to talk to me about this. But there's people in this community that take in more content and want to talk about it more than I do. I've never found anything like that in my <laughs> life, <laughs> you know? And so all that to say is like what, whatever H was and, and, and all this connection that Lewis had with these inklings, and these other guys, she was more than that. Mm. I mean, she, to some degree, I mean, in some way, I mean, and obviously, I mean, he's, you know, there's the intimacy that comes with the physical intimacy that comes with marriage. That's part of it. I mean, they were, they were connecting in every way. And so, um, well, there's a, there's also the interesting dynamic of, you know, Lewis, Lewis corresponded with pretty much anybody who wrote him a letter. Right. Yeah. And that's how the two of them met is she started, yeah. she was reading his books. She started writing to him. She was an author as well. But, I, and I have not read that Joy um, biography that Paul Vanderclay has talked about, but I, I get the sense that there was a bit of a, a, a stalkerishness, you know, somewhere in there. Now, <laughs> I, I might so, not, yeah. yeah, so I might not be conveying that fairly, but um, you, just, you just think of, like, if you were to think of somebody who you had just like really high regard for just based on um, their level of, of thought that they've put in a book or, or a film or some type of a, a work. Yeah. And it's just the, it's just maybe a person that you have drawn a lot of insight from and have become intimately familiar with just through their work. And then you start talking to that person. The point that I'm trying to get to here is, she had a she had a different level of perception and things that she saw in him and understood about him that she had just really spent a lot of time on potentially that he didn't even realize about himself and so mm. um there's there's that layer added to it as well i think that you know um that just i don't know really where i'm going with that but just trying to think about it in those terms as well i can see how you know that that added level for him is just even perhaps a even a greater loss than maybe somebody who wasn't i guess is all this is probably unfair to her as fangirl as she was about him man it's what it what that made me realize is my unfelt need for a stalker <laughs> like i think i need a stalker to help me just like realize things about myself and really color out my world it's like 
you know, I've, I've started pushing these videos on my wife. I'm like, honey, I need you to, <laughs> this is true though. I've told her, I really want you to start watching these videos. I want you to start learning more and more about me. <laughs> well, Jeff and I have talked about this offline, but like, like what I said to Jeff is, and I don't think you'd mind the sharing, but she's watched a few of your videos. I don't even ask my wife. She's like, I'm not going to watch these videos. There's no way. <laughs> she gets enough of me. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I kind of get where it's, it's a good point because they, they wrote for a long time and then they met in some pub and then that happened. I mean, as far as I understood the movie, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I've, I've had similar thoughts. Like I wrote letters back and forth with my wife for eight years before we even met. Yeah. And I'm thinking if, if she died, then I could maybe find someone else, but I could never have that sort of, yeah. like that was just, yeah, that was like, four, uh, how, how old was I? I was 14. And then, so yeah, that was until I was 24. We just wrote. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's actually kind of interesting because right outside the camera view is the big box of letters that we can be going through. We sometimes kind of look through and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's kind of a nice synchronicity. Um, we got about 10 minutes. What do you want to do? Uh, try one more? Yeah, let's go over that last yeah. bit. All right. Yeah, let's have some goals, bucko. Uh, <laughs> today, I had to meet a man I haven't seen for 10 years. And all that time, I had thought I was remembering him well, how he looked and spoke, and the sort of things he said. The first five minutes of the real man shattered the image completely. <laughs> Not that he had changed. On the contrary, I kept on thinking, yes, of course, of course. I'd forgotten that he thought that, or disliked this, or knew so-and-so or jerked his head back that way. I had known all these things once, and I had recognized them the moment I met them again. But they had all faded out of my mental picture of him, and when they were all replaced by his actual presence, the total effect was quite astonishingly different from the image I had carried about with me for those 10 years. How can I hope that this will not happen to my memory of age? That it is not happening already? Slow, quietly, like snowflakes, like the small flakes that come when it is going to snow all night. Little flakes of me, my impressions, my selections are settling down on the image of her. The real shape will be quite hidden in the end. 10 minutes, 10 seconds of the real age would correct all this. And yet, even if those 10 seconds were allowed me, one second later, the little flakes would begin to fall again. The rough, sharp, cleansing tang of her otherness is gone. And this is always when you see, like, I've helped people get, like, the last voicemail off of their phone in MP3 of, like, their dead father so that they could still listen to the last recording they had. Or I read, I read of a uh, heartbreaking post once on, on Reddit where uh, a man said, yeah, my, my wife and I, we had this thing where we would leave, leave these random post-it notes in and around things for the other to find. And like after she died, he was just going through some stuff and he finds this post-it note of like, mm. I love you, doofus. And he just breaks, you know, she's gone and he's still finding her, but not really, but he's finding her spirit in that sense. Well, so, yeah, so that's a, I think that's a brilliant 
what I was thinking and feeling during this paragraph and that illustration of, of the post-it note makes me think of, so the, makes me think of this is that our, I think the, the strength and the benefit and the grace of having a living person interacting with you and, and constantly, like he was saying, shattering your image is, is it forces you to interact with a person as an icon you're not allowed to set up your false image of it because they constantly smash it. You know, a real person is an iconoclast that's smashing the image, smashing the image, mm -hmm. smashing the image. But when they're gone, that grace isn't available to you anymore. So then you misremember and you set up that image as this eternal thing that's, that's faulty. And I think, and it makes me think of even one of the biggest things that I got from the book Loris, and I, and I believe this is true, that in the final analysis, time isn't real, is that when you were saying, and this is maybe just my, I don't know, call it what you will, mystical or romantic spirit, but when you told the illustration of the note, that was her communicating to him. Even though, she, I mean, like the, the timing of it all, like to me, it's like that's her communicating to him now. So like, I mean, and, and I think the reason that it, that it was so effective for him is, is not that is because that was a, I don't know, a, a, a gateway that was a gateway to communion that he, that he related to. And it's not that she was, I don't know. It's almost like the intuitive, the intuitive hope that we know that, that it, that grief is like a, I don't know how to say this. Um, that grief is just a processing. I don't know, because that's just the, what it makes me think of is, uh, I don't know, now it makes me, have you guys ever heard of the movie About Time? It sounds oh, familiar. This get, so this will get into, um, It's it wasn't an overly popular movie, but it's got, um, my, uh, it's got Rachel McAdams in it. Which is you were going to say it. Which is a period piece. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, and, uh, it's got, who's the, oh God, what's the guy's name? He's a British actor. He's like, oh, he's, he's one of the, the guys from Star Wars. Yeah. The new Star Wars. Alec, Alec McGinnis. Happy prop. No. Oh, the redhead. <laughs> the redheaded guy. Uh, with like the scar who's, um, I can't, even think of his, I can't even yeah. think of his character's name. Well, I can't either, because the new Star Wars are not memorable. Is Redhead in <laughs> um, Star Wars? Yeah. 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 He was also in an but, episode of Black, of Black Mirror, but I digress. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. Um, so anyhow, that, but that movie is about, uh, it's about time. And it's about a love story <laughs> related, uh, related to time. And I don't know. For some reason, it's popping up in my saliency right now that it's that's connected to these things of of relationship and love i don't know i'm gonna have to rewatch it now i don't um, understand how you can experience grief if time doesn't exist how can you have an experience without time well this is the weird this is the weird thing about our our finiteness is it's a it's kind of like um how consciousness is a uh 
we've we've talked about this recently and we've touched on this a bunch that consciousness is a lot of what consciousness is it's a jordan peterson thing is a limitation of your perception so that you can focus on things and paul talked about this recently in one of his things is um because if you were when he was alluding to psychedelics and maybe what psychedelics are just at taking the blinders off removing filters but like you can't function that way you know that's why like if you're tripping out on mushrooms you just sit at the base of a tree and just awe and wonder you know because you're seeing so much more than you normally see and in order for us to function and like focus and build a road you can't just be in awe and wonder all the time you got to strip a lot of that out so that you can focus on these minor details and this touches on all the things that we've been talking about of like our icon and our images and our limited perceptions of people because you can't take it all in we're finite i think the same is i think the same is true in relation to time um and this is kind of the mystery of what some kind of final participation in eternity is, in my opinion, is that. And, I, and I, it's hard to, it's hard to, because all thinking is analogical, I have nothing to compare this to. It's like understanding eternity. What, what, what does an experience mean outside of time? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, but I do think but I do think something like that is possible. I don't know. That gets into really complicated theories of time, but um, I don't know. We're, we're getting afar, afar from the text. Again. And we only have two minutes. So speaking well, of time. I, I did want to say one little thing about this. We'll see if I can keep it to one minute. Um, the, the note illustration and the piece that we just read about, you know, his memories and his ideas of, of H, you know, being snowflakes that are covering up the real version and eventually won't be able to see it anymore. Um, the, the memories that I have of a person um, are, the, to me, are those snowflakes. So they're not, mm. they, they, they are tainted or they are um colored with my own interpretations of them so they don't they're not necessarily they're certainly not the person themselves um and so i have that and then i'm thinking about the the person that you described in the illustration with the notes that he was finding of his wife after she had passed job and for me i agree with you luke those are those notes are actually representations of the real person that are completely well I wouldn't say they're completely disconnected from his memory of her, um, but they are shedding new light on and they are informing and they are bringing to that yeah. moment her in her reality, the, the real her. Now, yeah. it's interesting. It's a representation. It's playing, yeah, it's playing with the dynamic of time because, yes, those were written yeah. down and, and it was her in the past that was yeah. putting herself there or a part of herself there, her spirit, as you said, Job, on the paper. Um, but it's, it's, it's a her that transcends death and even transcends time because he's getting to experience a part of her that he had never experienced before. Yeah. That note is a, is a iconic representation that he's seeing through to her, which is why he was moved, why he was mourning, why he was hurt is because of that, the loss of her which is that 
that real life living, breathing, embodied presence of her inside. That's the iconoclast destroying his false images of her because what he loves is her. Mm -hmm. Not, Mm -hmm. not these images. Yeah. Not the photographs, the real thing. And it aches because he's, he's getting something in between, right? He's not getting the memory, but he's not getting quite the her that he had experienced when she was alive. He's getting, he's getting some kind of weird mix in these notes. Yeah. Right, Job? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it, it, it made me think of the spirit that transcends death walking on the water. But that's a whole different thing. So I, I couldn't completely make it work. It becomes too weird. <laughs> I think that concludes this episode. What did you have, Luke? You oh, I don't thing? know. I... Job was making me think of the walking on water, which would have sent me down a very long, different rabbit trail. I, I was afraid <laughs> it would, so I will stop recording now. <laughs> Wait, Pete, somebody walked on water? What are we yeah. talking about? Oh, no, yeah, yeah, his wife's a doctor. Uh, okay. Symbolically. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs>